At this retreat, we have spoken very frequently of mindfulness, describing it, uh, giving examples of it, telling you how to get it, where to get it, how much it costs. (laughs) And still, there are endless questions, endless confusion, endless uh, wondering when it's going to get here. So tonight, once again, it's my topic of discussion. The Buddha, in his um, 45 years of of teaching and and guiding people on the path of practice, spoke uh, a lot of words in his large record of his talks. And some say that or it's widely believed that, or valued, that the discourse on mindfulness is maybe the most important talk that he gave. Because in that uh, sutta, he talks about the how to practice to purify the mind from defilements and distractions, and how to liberate the mind from its um, wrong understanding. And in that uh, sutta, he says to a question put by a group of monks, he says that this, this is the only way, O monks, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. That's quite a promise or guarantee if you want to see it that way. So tonight I want to speak about mindfulness and I want to put it in the context of being one of the five spiritual faculties that I have been speaking about. The first that I spoke about was confidence or faith, that uh, assurance or certitude that we have based on our own experience that what we're doing is valuable, is useful. And that confidence in what we're doing, in ourselves, in the teaching, being the basis for the cause for the arising or the arousing of our effort to get here, to uh, connect and sustain our attention with our meditation object, to persevere in the face of extreme and oppressive unpleasantness in the body and the mind, and to develop the (coughs) subtle adjustments of energy necessary to keep balance, keep the practice balanced, not to strive uh, after some experience and not to be too lax in the face of uh, comfort or pleasant experience. Confidence giving rise to effort, effort giving rise to mindfulness, the ability to connect and sustain and to observe our experience. And mindfulness 
It's not a religion, it's not psychotherapy, it's not a philosophy, it's a way of practice. I want to tell a story or read a story. In the middle of the last century, about 1850, it was in the middle of the uh, scientific revolution where people were starting, or scientists were starting to study nature in the middle of cataloging everything in nature that they could get their eyes and hands on. And this one uh, Swiss naturalist, Louis Agassiz, came to teach at Harvard. And his understanding of, and his creed, or the essence of his understanding of education was that one should learn something thoroughly. And they should learn it not from books, but from observation. So it was quite a new way of um, teaching. And many students in Harvard at the time, or in Cambridge at the time, were interested to study with him. And so they would uh, apply to him and he would interview them to see if they would had the uh, interest or if they still wanted to uh, work with him. And so he would interview them. When the initial interview was at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when he would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. He was to look at the fish. The student was told whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. (laughs) Samuel Scudder was one of the students, and he described the experience as one of life's memorable turning points. He said, in 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, At three-quarters view, just as ghastly, I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last... A happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish, and now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. (laughs) I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when, toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. 
The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, <laughs> Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassi, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassi said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassi replied, Oh, look at the fish. <laughs> In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction, and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value, which I could not buy, with which I could not part. What we are doing here Okay, next page. <laughs> so. We're learning how to be scientists of ourselves. And for that, we need to learn how to look, how to see, how to stay with it. Maharaj, Nizagadatta Maharaj, says, Truth is in the discovery, not the discovered. And to discovery, there is no beginning and no end. Question your limits, go beyond, for every discovery reveals new dimensions. The unknown has no limits, so set yourself apparently impossible tasks. That is the only way. So what is this apparently impossible task that we're doing here trying to be mindful trying to be awake trying to be trying to observe our mind in our body what is this ability to look what is mindfulness first it is the power of observation it is not the observed phenomena, nor is it the observer. It is the process of observation. It is the awareness we have of our experience when we're undistracted. From our ability to connect with the beginning of experience, to sustain our attention for the duration of that experience, we're able to hold the mind or hold the object, hold the experience firmly before the mind so that the mind can look at it. We connect with, sustain our attention, the object or the experience stays still so we can see it. We're able to confront the object, see it face to face. course, quickly, the mind reacts to our experience. But the reaction is not the mindfulness, the holding of the attention, the coming into face-to-face -face contact is the ability to observe. Secondly, mindfulness is remembering not forgetting, 
not forgetting to be present. It's remembering to be present. It's the ability to fix the mind as if the mind sticks into and is fixed on the experience. Not forgetting to be there. Observing and staying still on the experience. When I say remembering, I don't mean this uh, obsessive remembering that we do a lot. You know, bringing up memories from the past. That's not what I mean by mindfulness. What I mean by mindfulness, or the remembering of mindfulness, is that moment when we've been drifting with a wandering mind, and we come to, and we remember that we are present in this moment. That's mindfulness. And the ability to extend that presence of mind into the next moment is developing the continuity of mindfulness. So it's the remembering to be present and to recognize, to acknowledge, to observe, to see this moment, this experience in this moment. (coughs) And the third thing, or the third quality of mindfulness, is carefulness or diligence. Not losing sight of our experience, keeping our experience, keeping in contact with, and remembering to be present with our experience, and being diligent in that, getting close to the experience so that we're not distracted by the appearance of things. That we stay with the appearance, but not get pulled into it. We stay present and observing it. It's helpful in, in, in this practice of trying to connect with and sustain and to be diligent and to be present and to remember, to not forget. It's really helpful to understand that we really don't know what this moment brings. We've watched the breath, yes, for, three, for a month now, and yet we haven't seen this one. Just like that fish. If you look closely, if you're really careful, if you're really diligent, you'll see that this one is different. You'll know that this one is different. One yogini came and reported a couple of days ago that she was walking in the woods quite mindlessly. And she, when she realized that she was mindless, she just aroused a tremendous determination to get present. And she just started walking really slow. And she said it was like she was stalking herself. Like uh, someone would stalk an animal by trying to walk so carefully, so precisely that you can get close to it without scaring it. She was doing that to herself. Walking in such a way that she was getting close to her own experience. That's the type of diligence that mindfulness is. It's the observing, uh, the not forgetting, or the remembering to be present, to witness 
what's going on. To be a witness to ourself. To see ourself. Kalu Rinpoche, one of the Tibetan teachers and, and meditation teachers, he said, and it's uh, on the stairway going down into the sala there, it says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. And by now you must have noticed that indeed most of our life is spent living on the surface of our experience, living with the appearance of um, how things appear to us, the roles we play, the concepts that we use to, to live by, and the things that fill up our life. <clears throat> our normal experience is of a very narrow range of what is possible to know, both in our body, not wanting to be uncomfortable, not challenging, not using our body, not experiencing the full range of physical experience, nor with our minds, not using our minds, not using the power of our thought, nor really feeling our emotions. We don't want to be uncomfortable with difficult emotions. They come and they torture us, but we really don't want to feel them. And we live on a very superficial um, experience of the mind and the body. When we come here and we sit still, we go slow, we begin to pay attention. It's as if our senses get cleaned up. And we start seeing things, literally seeing things visually, that we never saw before, hearing things that we never heard before, tasting things that we never tasted before. We've eaten lots of meals, but sometimes just rice can taste so different, so much more texture, so much more feel, so much more sensations in the body, and so much more going on in the mind. We're not creating it here. We're not making it happen. We're cleaning our senses by being sensitive, by being um, careful, by observing closely what's actually going on. In the discourse on mindfulness, the Buddha said that this is the only way the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four foundations of mindfulness? What are the four bases or the bases for the mind to be aware, for the mind to know, for the mind to observe? The first, and Carol spoke about these a week or so ago, the first is the body. Not only our own body, but all physical material experience. It's the element of 
hardness or softness or the rigidity or heaviness that we feel in the body. Itching, tingling, prickling. It's the element of movement, of tightness, of tension, of pulsating, of throbbing. These are physical elements that we feel. That we're able to experience directly without thought. We're not thinking hardness, we're feeling hardness. We're not thinking pulsating, we're feeling pulsating. Heat or coolness is a direct experience of material elements that we also feel in the body and outside. And the fourth of the primary physical experiences, fluidity or contraction or cohesion, a sense of cohesion or wetness or stickiness. Other forms or other experience of uh, materiality or physicality is sound and color and taste and odor, other very obvious physical experience. When the Buddha talks about these material elements being a basis for mindfulness, he means that we can observe these things. We can establish awareness of or mindfulness of attention to these experiences. There isn't a preference for one of the other, one or the other, heat or cold. One isn't a better basis for mindfulness. Hardness or softness. One is not better than the other as a basis for mindfulness. Both or all of these material elements. Sound or taste or a loud sound or a subtle sound. Both can be used as a basis for mindfulness. One isn't to be preferred over the other. So the first of the four foundations is physical, material experience. The second basis for mindfulness, where we can establish knowing, where we can establish seeing or observing, or what we can remember to be aware of, is merely the pleasantness or unpleasantness of experience. And sometimes that's all we know, is that this experience is unpleasant. No other identification necessary or possible sometimes. It's just unpleasant. Or it's subtly pleasant. The feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness, the Buddha identified as a basis for establishing Awareness, present awareness. Thirdly is the mind, consciousness. And this includes thoughts, feelings, emotions, plans, trying to figure things out. The Buddha didn't say, this. it is not possible to establish mindfulness. He said, it is possible to establish mindfulness of thoughts, mindfulness mindfulness of feelings, of emotion. (coughs) Whatever arises in the mind can be used as a base for establishing mindfulness. And fourthly, the dhammas. 
There are many dhammas. Any experience is a dhamma. The hindrances are dhammas. The factors of enlightenment are dhammas. All of them can be used as a basis for mindfulness. We don't have to somehow get through all the hindrances before we can be mindful. We can be mindful of them. When we come to practice, we begin to see what Kala Rinpoche said. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. And he goes on to say, there is a reality, and we are that reality. What reality are we? In the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist teaching is generally divided into three main areas. The first, or one area being the suttas, or the talks that he gave to common people, monks, nuns, lay people like ourselves, men and women, instructing them in the path of practice to liberate the mind, in everyday common language. A second part of the Buddhist teaching is called the vinaya, or the discipline Uh, the set of rules for monks and nuns to live by who want to devote their whole life to um, the path of practice and to liberating the mind. And that's the second major area of the Buddhist teaching. The third major area of the Buddhist teaching is what's called the Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology. And in this description, or the Buddhist psychology, is a very elaborate, and sophisticated uh, topography or map of the mind. And as he described this map, or as he, as he outlined this map of, our, of the mind, he did not use conventional symbols like man, woman, or human being even. He used purely the language of experience. Heat, vibration, thoughts, love, hate, joy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. And he used these non-conventional reality symbols to describe all that we experience, all that we are. So tonight I want to briefly mention a little bit about the reality as a stream of consciousness, which we come to know very well in this practice. And in this description of the the stream of consciousness, what's happening in the stream of consciousness, I don't mean it to be a set of beliefs or a dogma or a theory or a philosophy that you have to believe. One of the qualities or characteristics of the Buddhist teaching is that it invites your own inspection. Ehipasiko means check it out for yourself. Listen to what the instruction is, practice it to the best of your ability, and see. If it works for you, fine. You can believe it or have faith in it, have confidence. If it doesn't, forget it. What I'm offering tonight is just some of what the Buddha taught. 
Listen to it if you want. Apply it if you will. If it's helpful, fine. If it's not, don't disturb yourself. Let it go. Be a scientist to yourself. <clears throat> so in this stream of consciousness, this, this rapid uh, fluxing of our experience moment after moment, what's actually happening? Our senses are continually bombarded by sense stimulation. There is constant sights impinging on our eyes, sounds impinging on our ears, contact impinging on our body, smells impinging on our our sense of uh, smell, taste impinging on our tongue, thoughts or mental components impinging on our mind. In each of those moments, an object comes in contact with the sense base, giving rise to a sense consciousness, hearing consciousness, seeing consciousness, tasting consciousness, or some thought. This is where the mind begins to perceive what's happening. It's perception. It's where we take in, where we receive impressions through our senses. It's a very, it's the receptive phase in the stream of consciousness. And it's here that we apply meditation. When the instructions are to connect and sustain your attention at the moment of experience, when you feel the beginning of the rising, the falling, the lifting, moving, placing, or any other physical or mental experience, it's that point, it's that place that we apply our attention. What happens after we contact, after our senses contact some object? We begin to conceive, to to piece it together, to construct our understanding of what's happening or what we're in contact with. It's becoming acquainted. The mind is becoming acquainted or becoming familiar with our experience or the object. And the first that the mind does is that the mind synthesizes a composite picture of what's happening. It takes this bit of information, that bit of information, puts it all together and comes up with, synthesizes that information into something that we begin to recognize. And the beginning of the recognition is formulating an idea about it, having a sense of, what the attributes of this experience are. And in time, when that image becomes clear in the mind, we're able to know what it is. We're able to put a name on it. It's identifying this process in the mind, the ability of the mind to name experience. After we have contacted, synthesized, got an idea about it, been able to name it, then we react to it. We like it, we dislike it, we want it, we want to get closer to it, we want to own it, or we want to get away from it, or we see it clearly, we, we see it uh, unclearly. 
it's at that point that the mind begins to react to whatever our experience is. And often our reaction or the effect that this object has on us is habitual. It is a quickly stimulated response of, I like it, I want more, or I don't like it, and get away. And when we begin to practice, when we begin to uh, connect with our experience, it's at this phase of the process that we mostly um, begin to wake up to what's going on. It's where we see our experience most clearly. <clears throat> in the beginning of practice, or in the beginning of retreat or beginning of practice, our ability to connect with and sustain our attention to see things as they come in contact with the senses is minimal. The mind just is not strong enough. The concentration, the mindfulness, the tranquility, the confidence, the energy, the ability to connect, sustain, the decisiveness of the mind, the resolution of the mind. All of these factors of mind are weak. They're just not developed. We don't pay attention to them. And so consequently when we start, we can't see things very clearly. We can't connect. We can't be mindful through no fault of our own. It's the mind. We haven't trained it. But as we make effort, as we continually apply the effort or try to connect, try to sustain our attention, try to observe, remembering to be present, we begin to notice more. We begin to be less distracted. But initially we notice as this this, this scientist did, we notice how distracted we really are. We notice how much we don't really notice. And we've all had that insight, getting just mindful enough to realize that we're not very mindful. So we see that we're caught up in fantasy. We see that we're caught up in anger, disappointment, frustration, envy, jealousy, despair, hopelessness, shame, guilt. What else? We've got more. That's all right. Those experiences are one of the foundations for establishing mindfulness. They're not opposed to. They're not impossible to work with. They can be the cause for, they can be the object of arising or arousing the ability to know, to observe, to, to, to connect with that experience. So even though we aim our attention, we aim our practice, we aim our meditation towards that moment of contact with that sight of someone, we don't get there until we realize we hate that person or that we love that person. And we're either attached and stuck or we're averse and angry. Before we realize that we actually saw something, we catch 
our stream of consciousness in the reactive phase. In time, as our ability to connect with, sustain our attention on, and observe our experience gets better, gets quicker, gets more precise, we're able to identify what's going on. We're able to label that experience. We're able to acknowledge to ourselves what's happening. <clears throat> that labeling, or that naming of the object, is a process, is a function of the mind prior to reaction. If you can connect with, sustain your attention, identify that experience, label it, the mind never gets to the process of reacting. It's developing or it's cultivating the factor of perception or recognition of our experience. And it takes some time. It took this guy three days to look at a fish. So it takes us three months to look at our mind and our body. What we do in these first months or weeks or years is catalog experience. Everything in the mind, everything in the body, and in time it becomes more familiar. As it becomes more familiar, as we begin to recognize the patterns of energy and experience in the mind and body, the rate of acknowledgement or observation or knowing picks up. We don't dwell so long in distraction before we recognize it. We don't dwell so long in anger before we recognize it, or unpleasantness, or reactivity. And there comes times when we're able to be with extremely unpleasant experience without the reaction of aversion and dislike. And all of you have periods of time during some sittings, probably during every day, when you can sit with absolutely intensely unpleasant phenomena and not react. Why? Because the mindfulness is catching the process or the stream of consciousness at the level of perception prior to reaction. Mindfulness is fantastic this way. It can pick up anything. Subtle, gross, quick, slow, clear, foggy. Whether it's this big, as big as the universe, or as microscopic as a molecule, mindfulness can know it. Be careful about getting stuck in a particular model of mindfulness being microscopic only. And if you can't get microscopic, you can't be mindful. That's not so. Or, my, or mindfulness being only the primary object. If I'm not on the primary object, I can't be mindful. Don't get stuck in those limited uh, understandings of what mindfulness is or how expansive mindfulness can be, the range of mindfulness. So sometimes as the, as the speed of recognition of our experience increases, even the labeling becomes uh, unnecessary. When the mind is really balanced and poised and really clear, we can sit and know our experience and stay continuous with the 
changing sequence of experience without labeling. Labeling becomes too bulky, too cumbersome, too problematic. We begin to recognize experience prior to the labeling, where sometimes we can be with um, experience and not and, and know that we're clearly with it, clearly present, knowing this moment, and not know what it is. Not be able to put a word on it. Prior to recognition, mindfulness, knowing clearly, without a label. Sometimes this can be um, a little bit mm, uncomfortable because the instructions are label and connect and sustain and label your experience. And so we, we want to slow things down so that we can get a handle on what's happening. If you're clear and you know that you're knowing, don't slow down the experience. No need to label. No need to stop the flow of um, the stream of consciousness. Let it go. Identify what you can, let the rest go. <clears throat> Sometimes when the, when the object, sound, for example, strikes the sense base, giving rise to hearing consciousness, mindfulness can be there at any of those places. Mindfulness can be with the object, in which case it seems like our mind goes out to that sound. And we've all been sitting here quite absorbed in our own internal experience, and someone coughs, slams the door, or does something. And it's as if our mind leaves this center and goes to that place in the room. Isn't that true? Mindfulness of object. Okay? Sometimes we're sitting, wrapped up in our own stuff, reasonably mindful. A sound comes, and it's as if it is right in our ear. Someone is coughing right there. Extremely sensitive sense base. Mindfulness of sense base. Mindfulness of sense object, mindfulness of sense base. Sometimes we're sitting, we hear a sound, and we know that we're hearing. The sensation or the experience of hearing is most predominant. Not necessarily what and where it is, not necessarily that it's at the ear, but the sense of knowing, of hearing, is most predominant. This is mindfulness of consciousness. They're all right. They're all mindfulness. You don't have to make it one way as opposed to the other. Recognizing, recognizing that you are clearly knowing the experience is mindfulness. Whether it's the object, whether it's the sense base, or whether it's the consciousness. Another experience of mindfulness. Sometimes we're paying attention to physical sensations in the body. And we're feeling uh, some unpleasantness in the leg. And we have this sense of, oh, my foot, my leg, numb. Oh. And as we focus on it, 
we get so caught into and so um, so mindful of the minute things that are happening there, we lose all sense of foot. And all we're there, we're just there with a bubble of heat, which changes into a bubble of pressure, which changes into a bubble of stretching, changes into another bubble of heat, and it changes location. We lose all concept of foot. Mindfulness prior to conception. We don't need to somehow put that experience in the larger context of the body. Not necessary. We are mindful of experience prior to conceiving or conceptualizing what that experience is. Still mindfulness, still clear knowing of this moment. Someone was asking the other day how, or noticing that sometimes when they hear, it's as if they know where, who, what, when, everything about that sound, or everything about that uh, experience, physical experience in the body. Sometimes there is the context of that experience. Very precisely aware of just rising and falling, but aware of everything else that's happening in the body and in the room. What kind of mindfulness is that? That's good mindfulness. Sometimes the mind can be so, um, the mindfulness can be so precise that it is expansive, aware of everything that's happening in a moment. It's like looking at going out into the night sky when the moon is uh, not full, but a little bit. Looking at the moon, knowing that we're looking at the moon, seeing it, focused on it, precisely aware of it, and also aware of all the other stars in the sky. Observing the rising falling, observing some other sensation, observing a sound, and aware of the plane going overhead. This is not bad mindfulness. This is still good mindfulness. Mindfulness has a wide range of uh, abilities. Again, let me remind you, not to get caught in a particular model of or a particular limited understanding of what mindfulness is. Just one object to the exclusion of everything else. That's one type of mindfulness. That's one range of mindfulness. That's one experience of mindfulness. It's not the only one. We were having a discussion last night. Some of the teachers were having a discussion. And we were talking about some of the experiences that we have in practice and some of you have in practice. And it became clear that in any experience that we have, there's the object, there's the sense base, there's the consciousness of it. Consciousness itself is composed of many different factors. 
that I've mentioned. Determination, energy, concentration, mindfulness, tranquility, etc., etc., etc. In that moment of knowing, the mindfulness can pick up any one of those factors itself. Sometimes we are aware of mindfulness. And we may have this sense of, I am an observer, or there is an observer and an observed phenomenon. Yeah. Sometimes we're not focused on mindfulness. We're focused on something else. And we lose that sense of observer and observed. Does that mean bad mindfulness? No. That's just focusing on a different mental factor. Some people come and say, I can't sustain that ability to know observed and observer. Great. Don't try to. Don't need to. That's not an indication of good mindfulness. Or that's not the only indication of good mindfulness. So in the course of our practice, we develop or we catalog this vast range of physical and mental experience through mindfulness, through clear seeing, through connecting and sustaining and being with what's happening. Kala Rinpoche goes on to say, we live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality, the truth. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. Nothing solid, nothing stable, nothing that doesn't change. And being nothing, you are everything. You are every physical and mental experience possible. The four satipatthanas, the four basic. And being everything, I mean, you are nothing, you are everything, that is all. There is. favorite poet of mine, Galway Cannell, has this prayer. <clears throat> and he says, whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Good mindfulness prayer. So how do we get this mindfulness? What contributes to the arising and the continuation and the strengthening of mindfulness? First, of course, is wanting it. Having some determined determination or will or decisiveness in the mind that that's what you want. That you want to be present with your experience. That you want to remember to be here. As Woody Allen says, 90% of life is just showing up. All of practice is just showing up. If you show up, that's it. That's practice. So making it your your, your top priority, having some determination in the mind. A second factor that greatly supports the continuity of your mindfulness is perception. Recognizing what your experience is. And for that, we instruct, we we encourage you to label your experience. Labeling is perception, recognition of what it is, being able to name your experience. 
How often do you find yourself in wandering around the day, caught in some mental state all day? People come in, they say, for two days I've been in this mental state. For three days I've been in this mental state. All day I've been, all hour, whatever. We're not in any mental state for all day. We're not in any mental state for two days. But we think so because we don't identify it. We don't recognize it. We just kind of let it hang around in the background. General negativity. <laughs> we're noting, yeah, we're noting lifting, moving, placing. Uh, we're going to lunch, we're noting living, eating, doing, tasting, enjoying, enjoying. <laughs> so we got this negative mental state that's just kind of chattering along, filling in the background. We never turn around, or we rarely turn around, or hopefully we are encouraged to turn around and say, I see you. Huh. What happens? Yogi came in today, he says, I have this terrible mental state. This negativity stays around all day, every day. It's just uh, negative, negative. I say, I know it very well. I have it too. It must be in the soup. <laughs> and he says, when I remember to identify it, I look and I say, okay, so what's wrong with this experience? Here, I'm just, I'm just doing this. I'm just walking. I'm just doing my yogi job. I'm just doing that. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Can't find anything wrong with it. And yet there's this constant, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's not right. Something wrong. And when you turn around and look at it, it's not there. Recognition of what's happening, identifying, labeling of what's happening, supports mindfulness. A lot. Try it. <laughs> what's so funny? Anyway, so determination of the mind, labeling or perception, developing perception. Thirdly, one mindfulness, one moment of mindfulness, supports or conditions a subsequent moment of mindfulness. So that when you find yourself suddenly come to from a wandering mind, you've been wandering for five minutes or an hour or whatever, and you come to, that's the moment of mindfulness. It's presence of mind. Being in that moment, grab it. Extend it to the next moment. Keep that presence of mind from one moment to the next. The way to do it, go back to your primary object. Every time you find yourself drifting, lost, confused, or just waking up, go to the primary object. It's home. It's familiar. It's a safe place. It supports, it develops mindfulness. And fourthly, a very obvious and, and, and common support for mindfulness is being in a group. You know, coming to my, coming, people who come from outside and they come in here, for a day or for a minute or for an hour or something. They get mindful quick. Contact mindfulness. You know, it's like contact high, is it contact mindfulness? Being in a group supports mindfulness. So if you're sitting in your room and finding that you're not very mindful, come to the hall, get mindful, get support, get get some energy, get some just being with others. Powerful uh, remembering, powerful factor for remembering to be mindful yourself.
So mindfulness, the third of the spiritual faculties. The first being confidence, or energy, or faith, or assurance, or some steadiness, initial steadiness of mind that gives rise to our interest in energy and effort to be mindful. And the interest and the, the, the effort brings that ability to be aware, to know what's happening. As we are observing, as we are knowing, as we are present with our experience, more continuously, the mind gets collected. It just stays with our experience longer, becomes more concentrated, more focused. And a concentrated mind, a focused mind, knows more. So Scudder, he looked at the fish for 10 minutes, saw everything he could discover, was ready to quit. I'm done, finished. But the teacher knew better, stay with it, keep looking. And so after an hour, he was totally bored, ghastly. After two hours, after, after three days, he realized, I haven't seen it yet. We have to stay with our experience uh, for uh, more continuously, for a longer period of time, to see more of it. So don't feel that you know the breath yet, or the lifting, moving, placing yet. Stay with it. There's more to be discovered in each of those experiences. Even though the breath and the walking and the things that we do here are so ordinary, they're so nothing special, there is a profound reality to be discovered through mindfulness. So I want to close by reading a poem by Trungpa Rinpoche called Afterthought. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other, which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified, sometimes it is smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. So let's ornament our precious life for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.